Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm the publisher on Women's Agenda. And I'm joined today by our special guest host, Dr. Neela Janakiramanan. Hello, Neela. How are you? Hi, Angela. How are you? Good, thank you. So on the agenda today, we'll be sharing our wins from the past week, talking about how the US Supreme Court managed to send progress back half a century. And we'll also be discussing Neela's book, The Registrar. Thank you for listening. How are you, Neela? It's so nice to see you. I haven't spoken to you in a couple of years, despite the fact that we email back and forth and we're constantly publishing your pieces and I'm hearing from you on Twitter. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, It's been an interesting few years. It has, yes. You are based in Melbourne, so much of that time we actually haven't been able to cross borders and it would have been impossible to actually see each other in person, but definitely interesting. And to share a little bit of background on you, so you are a regular Women's Agenda contributor. You've been a panellist on our Leadership Awards. You're a regular media commentator on The Drum and elsewhere. You are prolific on Twitter, involved in multiple social justice campaigns, including as a medical lead in the Kids of Nauru campaign. But in your spare time, you happen to be a reconstructive plastic surgeon with particular expertise in complex hand and wrist surgery. Phew, you're making me feel really (laughs) tired. (laughs) I feel tired reading all of that. Then in your additional spare time, which maybe we can get into later on, you're also a writer, a fiction writer, which is absolutely incredible. So we might need to ask you how you get all of that done. It does bring me back to the first story that we published from you on Women's Agenda, which is still an absolute classic and still gets a lot of Google juice and people going and searching for it. And it's about the unicorn. And maybe we might touch on that later as well. Sounds good. (laughs) For starters, as we like to do on this podcast, we do like to start with a win for women. So what's your win from the past week? So my win is I went to a makeup class. And this might sound like a really strange win, but I am a woman of colour. I've got darker pigmented skin and I've spent my entire life trying to find products that actually match and actually look good. And I've watched any number of YouTube videos on how to do your own makeup and it just never looks right. And so I went to a beauty event um, and it's a very long story of how a surgeon got to a beauty Mm. industry event um, run by Hilary Holmes, who is the owner of Home Beauty. She's a makeup artist and the brand has a number of products. But the thing that she was launching was a primer for women who have pigmented skin. And the product is fantastic, but the whole class was for women of colour. It was designed specifically with pigmented skin in mind. The room was full of models and female actors. People are just gorgeous, can I just say. (laughs) And the whole conversation, though, was around how much the beauty industry actually fails them, about how they go to jobs and they get makeup artists who don't understand their skin and how to make them look good. Um, And this really feeds into a long-standing bugbear of mine, which is that film, as it's designed, is designed to capture paler-coloured skin. And so particularly if you're a photographer and you're shooting mixed groups of people, say at the Oscars, you know, you've got your one black actor or a black actress and everyone else, um, the way that the colours in that photograph are calibrated are 
always for the people with the paler coloured skin. And so that's why people with darker coloured skin often don't look as beautiful. And it just blew my mind the extent of the structural barriers that we put in the way right down to makeup and photography for people who have pigmented skin. So it was a fabulous masterclass on how to do my own makeup. So hopefully I'm a little bit better at that now. And it was just amazing camaraderie with other women of colour all sharing this this experience. And since I wrote about it for Women's Agenda, I've had so many messages from friends to say, oh, we thought it was just us. So I think it's good that things are changing now. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I was um, intrigued to read it yesterday as you published that piece, but even more intrigued to hear you share more on it now. So thank you. Um, I'm going to share a win that I guess might have a couple of links to that in that it is sort of still in the room. In the same realm of beauty, you mentioned actors being there at the event last week, but this is about the Oscars. And the Academy of Motion, Picture, Arts and Sciences has shaken up its member base. And as we know, the Oscars have come into a lot of controversy in recent years for how they've selected their winners and the lack of diversity in the winners and the fact that the Academy voters have been overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. In fact, a 2012 analysis by LA Times revealed that Academy voters were 94% white and 77% male. So we can kind of get the picture of what we're dealing with here. So they have had a shake-up. They've appointed 397 new members Wow. 44% of them identify as female and 37% are from underrepresented racial and ethnic communities. We are only just publishing a piece on this now, so I'm still getting my head around it. But, um, I mean, it, it is a big shake-up, but it still is only hitting the third or so mark in terms of its entire membership identifying yeah. as female and only one in five being from a diverse background, from a, a minority racial community. So... I feel like they've got some work to do, but they were starting from a pretty terrible base that this has helped somewhat and clearly there's still some more things to happen in the next few years as well. But, I mean, hopefully we'll see a shift. They said back in 2020, I think it was, that they did have plans to diversify the awarding process and implement a new kind of diversity requirements by 2025, limitations on boards, quotas for gender and underrepresented racial or ethnic groups. So, Things are in motion, but um, it is definitely a, a point where they're trying to remain relevant as well at this point. Well, that's true, isn't it? Because, mm. you know, if people watch the movies and things that they enjoy and there has been so much diverse representation in TV shows and movies in recent times that people love. So hopefully the awards can also catch up with that. Yeah, they're definitely going to need to. So I was actually going to share a different win before I thought of that one, kind of in response to yours. The win I was going to share was also a little bit a roundabout way to actually get to the big story this week that everyone is talking about, which is the US Supreme Court and their actually not so surprising move to wind back the constitutional right to abortion. I'm really interested to hear your response to this. I know how passionate it will be. But I guess my first quick take in terms of just trying to put a positive on it in Australia here is just how quickly so many people were to speak up and speak out about what was happening in the US and to see hundreds of people sign and organisations sign on to various petitions around this, to start pushing this to politicians, to get their response, to hear Anthony Albanese's response, to hear a new Minister for Women's response, to even hear the Shadow Minister's response to this. Still waiting to hear from Peter Dutton, we'll see. Um, but 
Also to see that Australian companies are offering support to those working in their US offices who may need access to abortion. So to see the response locally here, and it's also kind of stirred up an idea of, well, actually, how accessible is abortion in Australia? And what about the fact that things are differing across states? And what about the fact in regional and remote areas that it is actually not that easy and straightforward as it possibly could and should be. It's kind of stirring up that conversation. So as much as the horror situation that's going on in the US, it's good to be talking about this here in Australia. Yeah, agree. Neil, how did you react to this decision that came out? What was it, Saturday morning, our time? Yeah. Especially as a healthcare professional. So I have a certain context to this, which is that my sister is an attorney in the US. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've been talking to her about this issue for a long time. And the thing is, she first started saying that abortion rights were under threat in the US six or seven years ago when Mm -hmm. she was in law school. And the basis for that is not philosophical. The basis for that is legal. The law upon which abortion rights and a whole bunch of other stuff is based is, according to her, really bad law. And not bad law, again, in a philosophical sense in that it shouldn't exist, but as a legal instrument, it doesn't have a lot of standing. And I say all of this with the caveat that I am not a lawyer at all, and so I may explain this slightly poorly, but when Roe versus Wade and then later Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which is the the more relevant legislation, when it came in... The Supreme Court didn't have an easy place to put it because the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution didn't necessarily open themselves up to, oh, this is the bit where you should put it. So they kind of invented this concept called substantive due process. And so there's due process, which we've all heard about in American film, and then there's this other thing which is kind of made up, which is substantive due process, and they stuck it within a privacy clause of one of the amendments to the constitution and basically said that people have a right to privacy so therefore they have a right to do all of these things in private and abortion rights is one of the things that sits there Um, internet racial marriage is one of the things that got put there gay sex and then leading on to gay marriage also got put there so there's a few things they don't neatly all fit together but that's just where they got put But the legal reasoning behind it is quite poor. And even Supreme Court justices that we have a lot of respect for, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, pointed out that the legal basis was actually very weak and very poor. And the only reason it still stood is because no one had challenged it. And now someone has, and the consequence is that a conservative Supreme Court It was very easy for them to make the decision that they did because the law fundamentally was not written in a particularly good way. And so what that does is it hasn't hasn't banned abortion, it's just removed the federal protection for abortion and put the ability to decide whether abortion is allowed or not back on the states. And there are some states like California and New York that have really dug their heels in and said, yep, this is a protected right and we will make sure that it remains protected. And there's the entire middle of the country between those two ends who have said, no, nah, we're going to get rid of abortion rights. And that's really problematic. And the impact of that is distressing. And even for someone like my sister who has been expecting this to happen, has been waiting for this to happen, um, you know, she is currently pregnant 
with a wanted baby and is just spinning out because it's such a big deal and it's hard to see how the nation is going to move forward from this and what the mm. impacts on women are really going to be. Mm. When uh, you mentioned that she said that she could see this kind of coming six, seven years ago, was that in regards to the fact that well, all it took would be for that Supreme Court to flip and, I mean, and that seems to yeah. have been it really, but to, to stack the Supreme Court with those conservative justices. So it was always sort of on the cards that they could see that this was coming. Yeah. For her, that six, seven years is based more on when she was learning about it in law school. Mm -hmm. Um, It was always presented as this is something that's constitutionally protected, but it's really troublesome and problematic. And they had classes on why it was weak. Um, So, but by that point in time, it was already clear that the Supreme Court was going to go a certain way. Obama had managed to get Sotomayor and Kagan on when quite early in his term. Um, But then, of course, by the end of his presidency, he was unable to get someone um, appointed. And so the Supreme Court only had six judges for a period of time, and that left it wide open for President Trump to then then really stack the Supreme Court during his terms. Um, So I, I think her comment, you know, if I went back and asked her, it would be a combination of it was clear that it was always under threat from the moment I first learned about it, but it's also mm. the case that um, the philosophy of the court has changed. Mm. Mm. And, of course, Donald Trump is taking credit for it because he's mm. no doubt been a great advocate for these causes. It, it, it's such a strange thing. Um, yeah. you know. And I also then think back to, well, maybe was there more that the Democrats could have done? Was there more that could have been done um, in the Obama presidency? Um, so there's, there's, it, it, it's so deep and it's just so dividing as well. I really feel for uh, women and I, I really think about young women and women, uh, underprivileged women particularly in various states across the US. And when you really look at the maps, when you see those that um, are, have, have moved quickly to, to ban abortion and are expected to issue um, bans or severe restrictions really soon, you kind of see that middle of the country and I think of like young women say in Oklahoma or something and what they could do if they didn't have the means to be able to travel to uh, one of the uh, more progressive states and obviously when you get to the middle of the country and you're sort of surrounded by other states that are all issuing the same bans or severe restrictions it's a long way to travel and we've seen it in Texas where some of those women are now having babies who possibly didn't want to have those pregnancies but uh, found out they were pregnant or got pregnant uh, since that that ban, that six-week ban was issued last year. And there's been some really interesting reporting around that about who has been able to get the access to the abortions that they needed or that they wanted and who has not been able to and how some of those those women are, are having those babies now. Yeah, I agree. And, look, you know, coming back to the Democrats, I mean, I think it's important to note that the fact that abortion was protected by the Supreme Court and not legislation mm-hmm. is actually notable and at any point legislation could be enacted at a federal level to protect abortion. And the fact that it hasn't, I think, speaks to the progressive willingness to um, not push hard on this issue 
um, to just kind of go, oh, well, SCOTUS has done this, so we'll just we'll just let it go. You know, multiple Democratic presidents could have progressed this issue in the last 50 years and haven't. The other thing is, you know, it's notable that something like 70% of Americans support abortion. Mm. So you would, it's actually an interesting display of the failure of democracy and whether, you know, I, I don't, I won't claim to know enough about the nuanced way in which the American Constitution was set up and how their government works um, to, to say anything in detail about this. But you should have, I think, you know, if you're the greatest democracy in the world, there is an assumption that if a majority of people want a certain thing, then there is a way to enact that certain thing. And yet America seems to not only be unable to legislate to protect abortion, but they... Uh, just seem paralysed in this mm. whole issue. And I think that that is interesting and troublesome and problematic. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely stuck on this issue. And, I mean, we've all talked about this. Is that how quickly progress can be wound back as well? I mean, it's not even quickly in this in this case. We're talking years and we're talking, you know, decades of things where there could have been the signals. Or, but that whole idea of well, it just shows how more needs to be done. Even if you think it's okay in that moment, you still need to fight for those rights because it may not be okay in a decade or two decades or whatever it is. It's not this. We don't just live in this world where progress is linear and human rights and women's rights are linear. It, it certainly isn't like that at all and you constantly have to fight and protect them and you also have to constantly think about who is saying what about them as well that that's something i'm really taken from this and i'm looking at where people are speaking up where people are not speaking up and i think that's what i kind of want to notice right now and that's where you want to push on those people who are not speaking up to hear what they 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 really think because yeah yeah we 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 don't know and it's still i mean to think about when um Abortion was removed from the criminal code across different states of Australia. We're talking like the last few years. Um, we still have Western Australia that needs to catch on. So it's not like we are this this perfect land where we have this great right and isn't this wonderful and isn't that just, you know, ridiculous what's going on over there. We also need to think about here in Australia. And, again, who who can access abortions and who, yeah. who cannot access as well? Yeah, I think that's essential because rights are all good and well and necessary and we, we're clearly looking at what's happening in the US where they've taken them away, but rights aren't enough, you know, mm-hmm. rights are just on paper and if you're not implementing them, if you're not actually giving people access to those rights, then that is a problem as well and you can flip it around and say you don't have to enshrine a right to something if you're actually providing really good access to it so it's two sides of very much the same coin but in Australia we have a huge issue with access um, and affordability and particularly for um, women who are facing you know the the tyranny of distance or socioeconomic disadvantage. Um, And that is a major issue that we we need to address in this country. Mm. All right. Let's get to your book. Congratulations. I've um, been hearing about this book for a little while now and I still don't know where you get the time to write a book, but I can ask you that question later on. But my first question would be, I mean, the first thing is... um, uh, I mean, and I might leave it for you to to give a bit of background about the book, but really we are looking at the the main character, uh, Emma, who is starting that first year as a surgical registrar. Mm. And I think for most of us, certainly for me, 
I, I don't know what that really means. I don't know what that would be like. I think we don't really necessarily have any kind of inkling or understanding of what that experience is like because we've never experienced it. We we've may have interacted with uh, junior surgeons in hospitals, surgeons in hospitals. We may have had those conversations, but I can't imagine what the, the training part of it is actually like, which you have obviously experienced yourself and obviously a lot of those experiences come into this book how long have you wanted to tell this particular story yeah that's that's a good question I um I've the first thing I would say is I've written about surgical training because it's what I knew best you know Mm -hmm. I didn't think I could accurately accurately write say a pediatric trainee or an obstetrics trainee but a lot of the issues affecting um junior doctors in our healthcare system are actually quite universal And it has annoyed me for a very, very long time that those stories aren't particularly, aren't really told. Um, Certainly not in literature. You know, there's lots of TV shows about hospitals and medicine, but there's very few um, novels about it. Um, And it has particularly annoyed me that what small amount of writing there is, is all from a male perspective. And Mm. so there's no one really telling women's stories. And women have been 50% of the medical workforce or at least medical school intake since something like the late 80s, early 90s. So it's been a long time. And we now, you know, our medical students are a little bit more female than male. Mm. Um, And so it's always sort of been at the back of my mind. And when I was a registrar, so a, a junior doctor, I would often sit in hospitals at night time and just kind of make up stories to amuse myself. Um, and then years and years later, it I, I got some sad news one night and I thought, that's it, I've got to write the story. And so I sat down and I wrote the first three chapters that night. Wow. And story, and it builds on those experiences, but also the stories that you told yourself during your time. Am I like, is it, um, I, I do happen to know a little bit of background about the, yes. the news that you received, but is it suitable to go into that? Would you share that? Yeah, 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 of course. So um, when I was a, a first year surgeon, so I'd finished my training, I worked with um, a, a first year anaesthetist, um, and we'll call her Josie. Um, and Josie and I, I mean, we weren't very good friends, but you spend hours together in that sort of relationship in operating theatres, um, you know, week after week after week. And we had just finished our training and we'd share some of our stories and laugh about it and, you know, share the horror of some of them. And anyway, I worked with her for six months and then I left. I moved on. Um, I actually went overseas for a couple of years at that point. And then I came back and I didn't go back to work at that particular hospital. And this is the thing, you form these friendships, this camaraderie, and then you leave, everyone goes their separate ways. You kind of assume everyone's back at that other place doing the thing that they were doing before. Um, And the news that I got one night um, as I was talking to some friends, someone very casually mentioned, oh, you know, like when Josie died. I said, hang on, what what happened? Josie died. And that's how I learnt that Josie had died of suicide um, six months after I finished working with her. And I spent a lot of time reflecting upon our time together Um, and, you know, I didn't see any signs, I didn't see any distress, I didn't see anything that might have made me say, are you okay, in any more of a substantial way than, you know, we we talk on a day-to-day basis. And I moved through, you know, those phases of analysis and guilt and, you know, should I have seen something different, could I have done something different? 
And the thing was, Josie wasn't the first person I'd known um, who had died in the course of their work. Um, some by suicide, some by medical conditions um, that were exacerbated by the, the the nature of the work that they were doing. Um, and so it really, it was a moment where I realised what the cost we all pay to get to the point, um, to get to the finish point, um, which is the end of training. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of stories in that. It made it a very easy book to write in some ways. The cost that you pay, is it changing? I I think so, maybe. Um, there seems that, to be more media about it. That's one thing. but And this yeah. book will contribute to that, yeah. Yeah, I, I think there is more awareness. You know, I, I went to a medical student conference yesterday where there was just talk after talk after talk about um, overtime and burnout and women in medicine and unconscious bias and, you know, all of none of this stuff that, that I got taught as a medical student. So I think it is great that um, a healthcare workforce is coming through with at least the language to understand these experiences, whereas I think my generation, we were very much starting from scratch. Um, I think that there is probably more senior support now than there used to be. I would, I dare say there is not a hospital in this country where someone who was struggling couldn't find an ally who would help them. Um, whereas, you know, again, a generation ago, maybe that wasn't the case. But that's counterbalanced by the pandemic and mm-hmm. everything that healthcare has been through over the last couple of years and is continuing to go through. We, we're still... I don't actually know what it's like in New South Wales, but in Victoria we are very much a health system in crisis um, mm. with ongoing COVID, ongoing influenza, ongoing bed block, ongoing backlogs to elective surgery, um, ongoing ambulance issues. And, you know, the bits and pieces I hear from other states is that it's it's a national problem, not a state problem. Mm. Um, and so you're we're now in this situation where you can have all of the knowledge and all of the care in the world but, you know, I, I asked my own trainee to come back eight days after she had COVID to work and to do on call. Mm. And we did all we could to support her and minimise the amount of work that she was doing. But, but we still asked it of her and we will still ask it of the next person because we don't have enough people on the ground. Um, and so now as I get more senior, um, I'm starting to appreciate the humanity of the clinical directors, the hospital administrators, not that they are blind to these issues and throwing people under the bus because they're all psychopaths, but because they have pressures as well. And so everyone is, you know, a duck on the pond, paddling, paddling, paddling. Mm -hmm. I, all sectors obviously have pressures and people have their own individual situations going on, but I often think about anyone who works in healthcare and just think that it is um, a a level of pressure that the rest of us I don't necessarily believe can always understand because you are often quite literally dealing with life and death situations where, you know, often that becomes um, almost the joke when you're not dealing with that situation, when you remind yourself, hey, it's okay, it's not like we're dealing with a life or death situation here. You can use that to yourself. And so I think that's quite 
um, welcome that you say that about those directors, particularly because they have that pressure that's going on. It is the entire system and there's so much more there that, that is occurring. I mean, obviously the, the book talks to various, um, uh, talks to, to misogyny and racism and um, the, the, all of that that affects people's personal experiences. But then there's the systemic issue there, the systemic issues going on too and the whole makeup of this system that is just not funded as it should be as well and I think we saw that during COVID and I wonder if maybe at that conference if it's almost like that more people are talking about burnout and exhaustion because it's almost like the rest of us saw what healthcare professionals need to do to keep the rest of us all running and as a as a country and it's almost like we said well of course they're exhausted of course they're burnt out because they were basically our frontline during this this pandemic yeah yeah. And I think even amongst that front line, there was, it was interesting to watch the valorization of certain aspects of the workforce, <coughs> excuse me, such as intensive care, mm. um, but not necessarily the valorization of other parts of the workforce, um, like aged care nurses, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. And so I think it, it really was the whole health system working really hard to to sort of pull together. Mm. And why do you think that certain parts of the profession didn't receive that sort of um, heroism sort of feel? Because, again, I'd look at aged care workers and that's what what I feel. I was like, you know, obviously have had it really, really tough, have had asks of them that we could never have imagined asking of them in the past. Um, What happened there? Do you think there is much to do with in terms of the female-dominated aspects of certain areas of the healthcare profession? Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that, um, you know, the care economy really was neglected. I think feminised parts of the workforce, such as aged care, such as general practice, you Mm -hmm. know, what general practitioners did to vaccinate the population, run respiratory clinics, get people swabbed, is just an immense amount of work. And yet, because at a social level, we don't accord some of these professions with the same level of prestige or mystique as we might, you know, an intensive care physician. Um, And, you know, largely in the media, they were male, they were white, they were older, um, they looked very serious when they talked about intubating people and having them on ventilators. You know, it's it's high tech, high, um, it's very sexy medicine. Um, very masculine and so I think it's very easy to go wow they must be working hard and just forget Mm. the broad Mm. base that actually keeps most of it going Um, yeah I think Mm. it's interesting Mm. the book has like it it has a fast pace and because it sounds like there's a lot that you want to put in there in terms of what um, you kind of witness and in terms of bringing that into stories and bringing that into the characters as well so when you mentioned sort of sitting down and writing that three chapters immediately, does it, it? did you feel this sense of urgency to get this book written quickly as well? Yeah, I did. And then I didn't write it quickly at all <laughs> in the end. Um, I And, and interestingly, uh, two out of those three chapters got dumped um, by the end, um, which I'm told often happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... I did want to write and then I got very distracted by the refugee work that I was mm-hmm. doing and it sort of sat on a back burner for a while. Um, at the end of the day, it was less about getting it out there and more about the quality 
Mm. Um, if I was going to bother doing it, I wanted to do it well and I wanted to do the subject matter justice. Um, the pacing um, actually just reflects what happens in hospitals. Yeah. It's just, it's relentless. Yeah. And what has been the, I mean, it's got so many rave reviews that you've been able to include as well, but from uh, your colleagues and people that you've worked with who I imagine many of them have already read it or that you've shared a copy with um, yeah. even prior to publishing, what's been their reaction to the story? Um, trauma. Mm. <laughs> um, no, it has, it has brought up memories for a lot of people. Um, I think it's been described as being fairly accurate. You know, I didn't want it to be the Grey's Anatomy, everyone's mm. having you know, sex and broom cupboards kind of schlock medical writing. Um, I hope it's, a, it's interesting and fun as well. I mean, there are lots of darker issues, but um, I hope people enjoy reading it. I think, you know, a lot of a lot of friends that I've given to have enjoyed it. Mm. And so I, I should add, I've certainly enjoyed it. And it is, and even as, as an outsider looking in, I think I said that to you the first time when I kind of initially read some of it and you mentioned, and I said, I, I feel like I'm getting that opportunity to see what this is like, which, mm. like I say, um, like I said at the top of this conversation, is that I didn't know, I didn't understand. We, we see it, we just think, well, you're just amazing people. You're superheroes, you can make this happen. And we forget the the individuals and the humanity behind that. So I feel like we got more insight into that through this book. If you were to write a second book, and I hope you do write a second book, would you stay on the same subject matter? No. No. Okay. no I, uh, <laughs> have you already written the second book? You probably have for all I know. No, no. <laughs> I haven't written the second book. I have, I have started a second book which is um, on a slightly more, not slightly more serious theme, um, is exploring different issues but it's a bit denser. So I've actually started a third book uh, which is a murder mystery which right. seems okay. much more fun and light and enjoyable. And so right. anyway, we'll see what happens. I think the question that everybody would want to know, and I know that I certainly do because I um, I, uh, I do writing, we publish on Women's Agenda, obviously, we write every day, and I sometimes receive these just brilliant pieces from you um, regarding an issue that feels like only happened five minutes ago and you've already kind of delivered, you know, 800 words on it and it's amazing. But... <laughs> How do you write? What is your schedule? Do you have a schedule? How do you how do you find room and space for fiction writing, particularly? Um, I have no schedule whatsoever. Um, it the thing that I have I've learned is to give myself permission not to write um, because there's nothing worse than sitting there staring at a blank page, feeling the pressure to write something. So even the commentary that I write for you, you know, it's it's because something has sparked my interest um, and I think that there is something worth saying, um, whereas I'm less great if someone were to call me up and say, can you give us a 1,000 words on this particular topic that you have no mm. interest in whatsoever? Mm. Um, so, and I recognise that having a different day job, I have the privilege to be very choosy about what I write. But in terms of the... The writing of the book, um, I spend a lot of time thinking and then I write furiously, you know, a couple mm. thousand words, and then I spend a lot of time thinking and I do the same. Editing, however, is different. Um, I found that with the big structural edits in particular that I was doing, it was, it was holding all of these different storylines and themes and criticisms and 
things in my head was too hard. So I needed time off to do that. Um, mm. so all of the big structural edits I had, four, five, six, seven days where I just took time off work. Mostly took time away from family, actually. I was a very bad parent for that period of time um, and just did that as a, almost a full-time job. Mm. I have one more question on this whole process. It's actually something that I've been curious uh, to ask you for a while, but in terms of creativity and obviously a lot of creativity needs to go into, even though you're, you're basing this on um, you know, things that you've seen and you've, you're inspired by certain real events, but there's obviously a lot of creativity in it as well, which is um, requires a lot of vulnerability. But is creativity something that you've always brought into your your, you, meant, you called it your day job, so I'll call it your day job as well. Um, I, mean, I guess your other professional life. Does it help you in your other professional life because maybe you can disconnect into this world? Do you see it as ultimately helping? I think they're completely compatible. I think medicine is fundamentally creative um, and not just the nature of the surgery that I do. I mean, we treat medicine like it is a science and there are scientific aspects to it but it is an art it's about people it's about communication it's about connection um, it's about understanding individuals as as a whole person because if you don't the care that you provide is not going to be very good and yes you know there are there are some conditions I treat and operations that I do that are more disconnected from that than others but even so, every person will have an individual need, an individual um, problem that needs to be solved before you can, you know, can discuss anything related to their medical condition. And so sometimes creative solutions are required. And so I don't, I don't think, I think that's why there are so many doctors who are also writers, um, you know, people like Melanie Cheng and Leah Kaminsky, mm. because... Mm. Um, I think that there is a synergy there. Writers and musicians. There seems to be a lot of musicians yes. amongst the, the medical professionals as well. So you've had that experience as well. Yeah. And they're usually like really good musicians. They're not mucking around. So um, there's definitely something in that. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for everything that you do really. Um, the book is published on the 5th of July, so you'll be able to uh, get it in all bookstores and uh, get it in your favourite book app as well. It's published by Alan and Unwin. Congratulations on publishing it and making it happen. I know that you've got lots of publicity going on in the next few weeks and I believe also doing a few events later on in the year as well. So congratulations, Neela. Thank you. No, thank you, Ant. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can get all the stories that we discussed in some shape or form on our website at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter which hits inboxes just before lunchtime. We'll also have a piece there on Neela and her book early next week so you can check that out and we'll have links to where you can purchase the book in the show notes to the podcast and also online. Thank you for listening.